into it. Okay, good morning. I'm a queer Jamfi, founder of the British Blacklist, and it's well, this is actually truly an honour because it's a journalistic writing legend, UK-based journalistic writing legend that I aspire to have at least a quarter of his brain power. Please introduce yourself properly <laughs> to our audience, who you are, how you like to describe what you do, and where you're from. Well, that's that's very kind. That's very kind. My name's Gary Young. I live in Dalston now. Well, I'm a professor. That's my job. That's what I get paid for. That's that's the check I know is coming. I'm also a writer. I've done some television. I've done some radio. I've worked at The Guardian for 26 years. I was all sorts of things there. Deputy foreign editor, news reporter, feature writer. 12 years I was the US correspondent. And then I came back and I was editor at large. Um, so most of my career has been in writing. And I grew up in Stevenage. Interestingly, the most famous people from Stevenage are black people, which people don't know. Lewis Hamilton, amazing that he can drive that fast because Stevenage is just full of roundabouts. Ashley Young, who was in the same year as Lewis Hamilton, the footballer. Giles Torreira, the actor uh, who won the Olivier Awards. Uh, and my mum was his godmother. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I've never gotten to the bottom of why Stevenage was that way. It's got a tiny black population, bigger than it was, but still small. It's had two black bears, one black female chief of police. But anyway, that's where I grew up. And then um, I studied in Edinburgh, spent some time in Sudan as a teacher in Paris and Leningrad as a student, then came down to London then went to America for 12 years and now back in London. I mean, this is what happens when you haven't spoken to someone ever. So we've got to get your whole backstory in check so we can know who you were, so where you are today. Um, you said so much there. Can you describe your life in one sentence or a word, your life today, today? Figuring out what to say about what I think. Oh, I love that. Then I also feel stressed because does that mean you're trying to figure out what to say without pissing people off? Or you feel like um, what you're saying is not strong enough to piss people I mean, my experience as a black writer and communicator is that your existence pisses people off. Yeah. So then trying not to piss people off is not actually possible. So don't try. Be yourself because everybody else is taken. So uh, no, figuring out meaning the world is a complicated place. And uh, what do I think of that? How do I kind of relate to this or that? Some things, obviously, I don't have to sit and figure out Trump or whether sending people to Rwanda is a good idea. But trying to understand Trump's appeal, <laughs> trying to understand the nature of British racism at any particular time, all of that kind of stuff takes figuring out. And uh, I think it would be really sad if I ever got to the point where I thought I just knew it and didn't have to figure it out. It, mm, yeah, I hear you. I tend to say to my friends or to my, you know, my community of people around me that I wish my eyes weren't open or I wish I was an ostrich because I think life might be that much easier if I wasn't aware of the, the mm. shit show of the world. Um, I'd like to be more oblivious. So what was in the water at Stevenage that birthed a young man at the time who's become the man who's so racially conscious today? The truth is, I don't know. So, you know, if you talk to Lewis Hamilton, I interview him in the book um, Dispatches from the Diaspora. He grew up in Stevenage and 
it's been only quite recent, he says, that he has had a racial awakening. Here's the thing. I grew up in a single-parent family. My mother was very dominant in the family and had a, a way of thinking about the world that lent itself to critique. Okay. There was a little flag of Barbados on the door. I think it was like, when you come in here, you're in Barbados. When you're outside, you're, you know, you're mm-hmm. English or you're with your white friends, as she would say. She would never have described herself as an anti-racist, an anti-colonialist, a feminist. She would ne- but that's what she was. Right. And so you'd see something in the news about Ireland and she would say, you know, Northern Ireland, she'd say, that's more complicated than you'd think. Or she made us stay up and watch the miniseries of Holocaust. She said, these are your people too. And most of the people around where we live were white. And so she had to engage with both their racism and their needs. She was a teacher. And so a lot of my politics comes from her. <laughs> I grew up in the 70s. I'm old. So it was a race conscious time. Like, And by race conscious, I mean white people were mm-hmm. race conscious. Uh, not that black people weren't, but actually there were very few of us where I lived. But the National Front were doing quite well. Very flagrant expressions of racism were common. It was still not understood that you might be black and British. So people were still like, oh, where'd you come from? Oh, I bet Oh, the car is cold, isn't it? I bet, you know, it must be a shock for you, even though I was born in Hitchin. Yeah. So it was a very race-conscious time with white people being the most racially conscious of all and also this sense of British decline, Mm. 70s, blackouts, strikes, post-colonial kind of hangover, punk. Mm. That then required some kind of response. And, you know, I I think I found a lot of that in my house. Like she used to... And I write about this in the book in one of the articles about her dancing around the house with my feet on her feet when I was little to young, gifted and black. Like our name is Young and she'd say, let them play in our song. I was raised with a sense that like the world you are going to occupy doesn't know you yet, isn't really ready for you yet, hasn't really in some kind of crazy way, like you're going to have to make your own way. Yeah. And you cannot be bound by other people's expectations or, you know, and that's something you're just going to have to deal with. And it wasn't until much later, and by much later, I mean late teens, that I was, as a political person, I was first involved in, like, Marxist stuff, class stuff. Because the idea of racial solidarity when there are no black people around, well, who are you going to be? Who are you going to have solidarity with? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it wasn't until I was, like, 19, 20 that I got into Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Maya Angelou, well, Audre Lorde was even later, but all of that kind of stuff came much later. When you said that, trying to figure out what to say and how to say it, what was on your mind when you decided to birth dispatches from the diaspora, diaspora, your latest book? Because in mining your mind as to what to say, you've already done five really significant books on the times. How do you sift through that to then say, okay, you know what's ready, what I'm ready to do is dispatch from the diaspora? The two things. First of all, journalistically, I've had a very blessed life. And I I, I met a lot of um, interesting Black people who are important to me. And originally, I wanted to do those interviews and call it Conversations in Black. That was my original thought. 
and in the book there are interviews with Maya Angelou, Bishop Tutu, Stormzy, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Claudette Colvin, Andrea Levy. But I interviewed a lot more people, Jesse Jackson, who aren't in the book. Jesse Jackson, Lewis Farrakhan, Tracy Chapman, Steve McQueen. Anyway, loads. And I thought, yeah, that could be a bit. But then when I, when I looked at them, a lot of the interviews, they just weren't that good. They were fine, but... They didn't have a connective thread? Yeah, well, the connective thread w- would have been race, and that all of them in some way spoke about race. Okay. Also, the connective thread would have been me. It was one person talking fine. to all these people. But Jesse Jackson was pretty grumpy when I met him. Tracy Chapman doesn't really like talking. Spike Lee was, frankly, being a bit of a dick. And um, that's how interviews go. You know, you show up and, you know, sometimes you get 45 minutes. Sometimes, like my Andrew in the book, I end up with 17 hours and we end up getting drunk in a limo. Like, you just don't know. So um, I thought actually maybe better would be to collect the things that I've done. I've been in these places. I was there, you know, for the Mandela election. I was there at Hurricane Katrina. I was there on election night in Chicago when Obama won. You know, I was writing when the McPherson report happened. Like all of these things I've seen and not many people have had that opportunity. And collecting them together in the same way that my second book was about at a certain point in America, collecting all my American journalism together, that collecting all of these together would have value in this moment, you know, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. I'm kind of trying to get some continuity about how we ended up. So I thought there was value in that. Since then, and you know, I don't mean to kind of harp on about this like ridiculously, but I've realized how old I am. And that someone who's, let's say, 25, they weren't born when yeah. Mandela was elected. Yeah, They weren't conscious when the McPherson report came out. They would barely remember, maybe, Obama being elected. They'd have been about 10, you know, so probably not politically conscious probably wouldn't remember Hurricane Katrina, which they would have been said. So that actually that there was some value beyond what I'd originally thought. Being black mm-hmm. and then getting all the access that you have gotten and because of the accolades you've managed to achieve through your journalistic career, when you listed all the people you spoke to and the majority being the Guardian, right? Was there ever a time that it was like Gary's ear He's the black one. He can do these conversations. Was that ever the case that you do the black ones? And if that was the case, were you okay with that? Or was it that I'm in this space, I've done this well, and I'm going to go for these black people because of my backstory and legacy? Just to say, wherever I've gone, wherever I've occupied, I've actually been okay doing the black things. Mm. But there's a conversation I had where someone said to me, we want to put you in a space where you can do more, but to ghettoize you, to just do the black things, that's not going to give you those other people. So I just wanted to have your thoughts. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I've also interviewed a bunch of prominent white people. You know, most recently, Jeremy Corbyn, Mick Lynch, John McDonnell. My view, right from the beginning of my career, I was told one of two things. Either 
we only want you for the black stuff. And even when they would never say that, but that's what they would do. Or don't do the black stuff. You will be ghettoized. You will be. And my feeling about the ghettoization is, you know what? Why is it that when black people are together, they call it a ghetto. When white people are together, they call it what? A cabinet or a boardroom or whatever. It's like, it's crazy. Throughout that dichotomy, no one ever said, do what you're passionate about. Do what you're interested in. Because those are the things that you would do best. And so by the time I'd gotten to The Guardian, I was an involved, political, politicized person. I don't know that there would have been anybody more appropriate at that paper to have interviewed Maya Angelou or Louis Farrakhan or Jesse Jackson or Stormzy I did for GQ. That was different. Some of these things I found by myself. So Claudette Colvin was a story that I found by myself. And it's impossible to speak for the motivations of others. There wasn't anybody that I interviewed that I thought, I don't want to interview them. I'm not interested. And I genuinely do respect the question. I think it's it's a good question, particularly in this forum. And it's also true that white people are never asked that. If a white person interviews a load of white people, Nobody says, do you ever think that maybe you were like ghettoized? And so just as you saying that, because I'm like, I, I don't ever limit myself to who I speak to. And your list, I could only dream to have spoken to those people. For me, that's good enough. And for the community, that's good enough. But there is that language that even black people can project that. Oh, I've had black people say, "You do, why are you doing this black stuff? And it's not irrational. No, it's not. Because there's a fear In a world where blackness is not valued by power, then being understood to be engaged with blackness, overly engaged, is to attach yourself to a kind of form of powerlessness, to a form of um, less than. And what's important is to ask ourselves, well, what's wrong with that category? The second book I did, a collection of work from America. Nobody ever asked me, Why did you limit yourself to America? Because it's understood why you would write about America. Uh, I mean, there's a great quote from Toni Morrison where she's asked whether she finds being a black woman writer limiting. And she says, no. (laughs) She says, "Um, I'm already politicized. I'm already disparaged before I get out of the box. But I don't find it a limiting place to ride from. I find it a very enriching place to ride from. And I feel the same. Finally, the last thing I would say is that black things are still things. Exactly. Like yeah. Obama, you could say, well, that's a black thing. It's a presidential thing. Yeah. Spike Lee, he's not in the book, but like that's a film thing. Andrew Levy, it's a writer thing. Yeah. And so we get into this place where only some things have a racial adjective and other things don't and i've always felt very comfortable about it and i felt that the most important thing about this for me particularly with regard to younger people coming into the profession or any profession actually is you cannot control how you're perceived people look at you they see robber murderer dancer sexual prowess they see what they see all you can control is what you do I'm not going to give other people the power to tell me whether the things I do have value or not. I have to decide whether they have value or not. 
for any underrepresented person, any person with identities that gives them less power rather than more, that's a vital notion that I will define myself and I will decide for myself what I believe has value and what doesn't have value. Perfect. So as you mentioned, the young people, the kids who aren't reading, <laughs> who aren't reading you know, the top headlines, they don't read, they don't go outside, they're on their phones, they're on their gadgets and they're not communicating. There are still parents who are do what our parents did. And I had a similar kind of politics and life and existence and stuff like that. And I know I've instilled that in my daughter. So she is an anomaly, I guess, in the world that kind of said that kids don't respond to those things that I said um, or aren't doing the things I said. Just how does dispatches from the diaspora reach this new generation? And when we have things like the race report that came out a few years ago saying that everything's okay, though I vehemently disagreed with that findings, I have had conversations about how do we move forward without these oppressive stories behind us, but how do we also use them to empower us in a time when we, as you said, they're going to be so they're generations that weren't born in those most really key. I mean, George Floyd is a new version of, you know, what Stephen Lawrence and before and before in the civil rights and stuff like that. But it's a different existence when you feel like you've got so much freedom as well. I think younger people get a rough deal. They drove the protest around George Floyd and they used all of those things that they are disparaged for, the clickety-click and the phone thing and the yeah. light thing and all that. They used that in order to mobilise people in large numbers. And often when I speak to young people of any race, actually, they seem more sophisticated in matters of race, gender, sexual orientation, definitely sexual orientation, than I was at their age. So I think they're a very sophisticated group of people. Maybe they don't read my book. Maybe they read Renier Lodge's book, or maybe they read you know they snack on stuff on the internet or yeah. maybe it's you know Tanahisi Coast or I don't know I don't know what they do I would hope that some of the things I write would speak to them either immediately and urgently or in terms of a kind of historical lineage you know when I was in my early 20s I was reading about the Zimbabwe revolution or things that happened yeah. like 20 years ago. So it's, you know, it's possible. And to be honest, if if we look at the protests in George Floyd, I don't think most of them think everything's okay. Yeah. I think that kind of racism, racism is a very hardy virus. As soon as you think you've got the inoculation, then another variant comes through, you know, and then you, you have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. So these young people will have grown up with Windrush as conscious people. Windrush, the response to the Euros, uh, an England football team taking the knee. I mean, these are all young people. And I was struck in my interview with Stormzy, that's in the book, at the fact that if you just map when he grew up, he grew up during the financial crisis, austerity, Black Lives Matter, anti-war protests. These are the things he grows up with, you know, and he comes out as quite a defiant supporter of Corbyn, mm. quite a prominent anti-racist. He puts his money where his mouth is. 
I was born in 69. Thatcher came in when I was 10. I grew up during a period of constant defeat. There were four black MPs elected, but there weren't people out in the Well, there were people out in the streets, um, uh, 81, 85, 87, but that was rage. You know, it wasn't, I think it was great that they did. Mm. And there's one article in the book called Riots Are a Class Act, which stands in defense of people's right to protest, sometimes violently if necessary. Yeah. And those people made my career possible, actually. So my generation, I feel, is much more conservative than younger generation, reflexively so. But of course, we're dealing with different things. So yeah. I grew up wrestling with, am I British? How am I British? What does that mean? Whereas Stormzy says, I am absolutely Black British. Like, I hang my hat on that. It's a different set of challenges. My mum came from Barbados. We had the flag on the door, like I said, and the the thing on the wall. Well, a lot of the kids are growing up now. Their parents were born. My kids, you know, I was born here. Mm. I was raised, I can't remember when Britain first played for black football player. I can't remember what the date was, but I certainly was old enough to be conscious when it happened. I was old enough to be conscious when we had four black MPs. These are banal facts of life to my kids. Mm. Mm. What you've experienced through life, and I think doing the British Blacklist, we launched it 10 years ago, so I came into the cycle. I think the new cycle was starting when it came to diversity and inclusion, where there'd been previous people have done, you know, advocated, got the arts to rights, and then I always say we rested on our laurels. Do you ever tire or feel like this isn't going to change or shift or the world is too damaged and you've seen it before, you've seen it before. But what keeps you going and talking? Partly, and that comes back to the original answer to the original question, I'm always trying to figure it out. It's never quite how it was. You know, the thing that I struggle with is the kind of push-me-pull-you that there are times when I feel like, wow, things are really moving. And then there are other times when I think, oh, my Lord, how did we get there? Deporting people to Rwanda. How do we get there? Yeah. Windrush, just deporting people. Yeah. How the hell do we get there? And trying to figure that out is hard. By nature, I'm an optimist. I think that's because I'm a socialist. I believe most people are basically decent. Mm -hmm. And that bringing it more locally, that Britain is better than this and that people can be better than this. And that there, you know, that there are these flashes of empathy and humanism where I think, okay, all sorts of things are possible. Who would have thought that you would have the English football team taking a knee, making an anti-racist statement? Football mm. was the site of racist organisation. That's where the NF went to recruit. And this comes back to the collection in a way. One of the ways in which it's possible to access that optimism is historically, is to understand, okay, so things have been better, things have been worse, and not to confuse optimism with delusion. Yes. Ooh. Which some people kind of equate that dichotomy between optimism and delusion as cynical. And I said to him, I'm, I'm not cynical. Jesus, my whole life trajectory speaks to a sense of possibility. 
Yeah, that speaks to hope. Yeah, it really does. Um, but I'm not delusional about how many people have that possibility and the fact that the possibilities that I have enjoyed have been because people took to the streets, because people fought. Not for me personally. Uprisings in 81, 85, 87, they made the space for people like me to come through. I mean, literally made the space. Mm. After the 1987 riots, The Guardian decides or the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, realizes that there are too few black journalists, and it decides to start a bursary scheme to encourage black people to go into journalism and to do a postgraduate degree. Mm. And I'm one of the first people that gets that postgraduate degree. Obama was not possible without the civil rights movement. Just wouldn't have been possible. I mean, actually very deliberately in the book, but just generally in my life, my or my trajectory, the tragedy is that very few people make it through. And I, I think that bestows a responsibility on those that do, actually. I understand that. Was there ever a plan B? And I don't know what your plan A was really, but was there ever a plan B to whatever life has thrown at you? Or Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a plan A. This wasn't my plan, yeah. really. I had wanted to be a translator. That's what I trained to do. Translating uh, what? French and Russian into English, but... Why did you want to translate French and Russian, those particular... I, I was... Um, languages was the thing that I was really into at okay. school. It gave me an opportunity to travel. Okay, I was interested okay. in the Soviet Union. French meant you could go to Senegal, Gambon, you could go, you know, like, you could go places. But I realised while doing that course that I didn't love translation, but I did love manipulating language. I did love what translation taught you about language. And I, I was very politically active and I was running rent strikes and organising the anti-apartheid group at university and all of that. So the two things kind of came together. But it wasn't... I didn't grow up thinking writing was the kind of thing you could make a living from. Mm. thing you might do. But, I mean, you know, we had books, so I realised someone was making a living, but I didn't think it would be me. So then journalism emerged as a kind of convergence of the kind of things I was into. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a professor. So I guess um, I guess being a professor, I'm doing my plan B now. I did my plan A for 25 years and now I'm doing something else. I like it. Um, what are you watching right now? I'm, <laughs> that's a good question. I'm watching Shameless, the American. Okay. I watch a lot. Of, I've got a 10-year-old girl. So I watch a lot of nonsense. <laughs> um, I'm not proud of this, but it's true. I have been watching reruns of Frasier. No, what I expected to come out of your mouth was Live Island, and you said Frasier. That's as no, well, it's embarrassing. But you know, Why? you heard it first. <laughs> I, I, I literally just finished rewatching it not long ago. Really, Frasier? Yes. Why? Because I, I like. I remember liking it when i was younger and mm. i think it's on one of the new, the new streamers i was like yeah, it's on all four yeah, yeah and i think i got one of the one of the american ones i can't remember which one it is okay. um i wanted to remind myself i um is it i take a lot of stick from this in the house really yeah my daughter just says why are you watching this trash my wife's american she's like you know what's this about and the truth is well there's a couple of things first of all it's easy yeah. Actually, first of all, I kind of like it. I must do. It's Secondly, it's easy. The episodes are short. 
and when you've got kids, you don't have a huge amount of time yeah. before you got to go on to something else. But honestly, I'm also kind of, it's not primarily why I'm doing it. I'm not trying to put a gloss on it. But I do find myself kind of analysing it and critiquing it. Yeah. And, you know, if you put <laughs> Frasier together with Friends, which I never watched when it was on, yeah, and I watched it more recently. And this what that was deliberate because whenever I saw it, I never liked it. Mm. Uh, Friends, Seinfeld, which I really liked, and you see this creation during the Clinton years, yeah, of of a world without black people, yes. And it didn't have to be Seattle; it could be New York, just yeah. no black people. And this is you know during the period of like the LA riots and exactly. of a kind of really intense racial agenda. And so I'm not watching it thinking, where are the black people? Where are the black people? Why is it? But I'm watching it with that in mind, like, what world are they trying to create here? So there is that too. But like, you know, my time would be best spent reading a good book or finishing the hip hop. The Chuck D series. Yeah, which has been brilliant. And I haven't finished it yet. And every time I go on to all four, I think, man, you know, you need to be watching something else. But I don't. Okay, so... You're making me laugh and smile. And it was um, a fight the power how hip hop changed the world. Mm. That's a BBC series of Chuck D. Um, well, he's... which I love, which I, I mean, am loving. Yeah, it's brilliant. I but I think sometimes we do beat ourselves up. My daughter might have passed by me watching Fraser and like what mum, but then she's used to because I get which I try and rebel against. Sometimes she's like, you know, you're like a middle class white woman, mum. And I'm I, I went to school in Wimbledon my whole life, and I was fostered to a white family at some points in my life. And they were a middle-class white family. So I have those tendencies. But I also want to reject the idea that doing something, I don't know, whatever, makes you then become a white person in mm. imposter. It's like, this is my, I'm a black woman who enjoys these things. But anyway, we could have a good conversation about phrase. I love that you said that. Uh, so what are you reading right now? I've always got a few books on the go. I'm reading a book called Raceless by Georgina Lawton, which I'm okay. really enjoying, which is... Um, relatively recent a couple of years ago she wrote it and she has two white parents and she is dark and she is told that she is you know a throwback what they call a genetic echo that her mum's from west island and secrets and lies family i'm not giving anything away because it becomes clear right at the beginning that her mum actually did have a white nice one night stand with a nigerian but she's been raised with this lie and she's in her early 20s before she manages to kind of crack it open oh, wow. and to admit after her dad has died. And uh, it's, it's very well written and she's um, a very evocative. So I'm reading that. I'm reading a biography of Aimé Césaire, the uh, French Guadeloupian writer, politician, poet. I'm reading a book about immigration in six different countries that was written i think in the kind of 80s and finally a book about black people mostly african-americans but not exclusively in the soviet union i mean if that doesn't redeem your fraser watching i don't know what will. yeah you could say like after after all that you need a bit of fraser maybe you need a bit of fraser what are you listening to right now um and that can be musical podcasts or anything what are you actually listening to the- it's a joke in my family that i don't do new things you know, if we're getting takeout, I'm like, get me that. And they're like, you always have that. And I go, I know. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. I only get introduced to new things when <laughs> people make me. Yeah. 
Uh, so, you know, I'm into kind of R&B and so and 50s, 60s. I also like disco. I love disco, actually. And most of the new things that I listen to, I listen to with my daughter. We watch a lot of music videos. So I'm getting a little bit of K-pop. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Um, and then, you know, what? just whatever happens to be piped into her world, however it's being piped. I do feel like actually it gets to a point where we just fall, default to our soundtrack of our formative years because I'm mm. the same. I'm stuck in, you know, hip hop, R&B of the late 80s, 90s and 2000s. It is what it is. I have no aspirations to get into what's going on now <laughs> but what comes my way by my daughter. Same way. What's the last thing you saw on stage? I don't know if you get to the theatre, if you have time, but what's the last thing you saw on stage? That could be music as well, not just a... Um... Last thing I saw on stage was Anne Juliet. Oh, cool. Which I went to with my daughter and a girlfriend and her daughter. Oh, nice. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. You know, more importantly, because I wouldn't have gone, Zora enjoyed it, but actually I did enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, what's on your bucket list? Do you have, I mean, you've done so much. Was there anything left? I've not been to Brazil. I'd like to. I'd like to interview Obama. That'd be good. I want to retire half the year in Barbados. But like, um, you know, you can tell from my list, I don't want to like uh, hang glide off yeah. a very big building or go in the ring with like, you know, some WWF or something yeah. like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing that has shaped my understanding of myself and what I might do is that my mother died very suddenly when she was 44. So I think life is precious, it's precarious. You yeah. can go at any time. So I try and live my life so I don't have too many things on my bucket list because you, you don't know when you're going to kick the bucket. I hear you. I hear you. Celebrate someone. Who do you really rate right now? There's quite, a few, there's quite a few people to choose from. There's a group of young Black women that I'm very grateful for. Uh, at The Guardian, there's um, Nizri Malik. I use young advisedly because I'm old, but like uh, there's um, Nizreen. There's um, Hannah Paul, who runs the Burning Ground Centre. There's um, Nadine White, who's a uh, race correspondent at The Independent. Alexandra Wilson, who's a barrister. And she wrote a book called In Black and White. Most of these people I've never met. Some of them I have. Mm. And Georgina Lawton. They feel like a cohort of smart, critical, sharp, feminist, race-conscious women who I'm just grateful for. Caris Ofoko, she started Level Up, but she, she works somewhere else now. But um, yeah, I would go with them. That's a beautiful list. Um, but celebrate yourself. Who Make us proud. What's something that you that stands out as a proud moment? That's much more difficult. You know, I feel, well, there's two things here. The first is that the, the established moments of pride that one, one might have are always kind of tinged with sadness for me because I wish my mum was there and she's, you know, she's not there. So honorary degrees, awards, there's always a moment of sadness there. Mm. I think I'm proudest of the moment where I've had to make a stance that might cost me. Mm whether it's a certain point, kind of against my will, I became 
one of the main union reps for the Guardian, and I really didn't want to do it. Not because I thought it would be it would harm my career. It's just not where I saw my priorities at the time. But like prior to that, a few times I have stood up for black colleagues in or outside the Guardian. That's probably what I'm proudest of for myself. It was important to do it. I didn't do it with any sense of accolade or praise in mind, but I did it knowing that it would, could, and usually did cost me something. And that's really when you're tested, right? It's quite easy to make statements that aren't going to impact you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, What's made you sad, mad and glad this week? Um, Well, I I have a friend who's dying. Sorry. And who's I'd hoped to see her last week and it didn't come off. I'm hoping to see her this week. Uh, it made me sad that I couldn't see her. Um, and she, she's literally got a few weeks to live. Oh. Mad last week would have been Labour expelling Corbyn, saying that he couldn't stand, which I just think ever since he emerged as the leader of the Labour Party, mm-hmm. it's been a group of people who have been in denial. They didn't want to engage with why he was popular. They didn't want to engage with why he got the highest vote twice. They just wanted to get rid of him. And now they want to pretend he never existed. Yeah. That Keir Starmer was never in his cabinet. It's Alice in Wonderland stuff. It's bonkers, which is not really about him being a faultless individual or being, you know, a messiah or anything weird like yeah. that. It's just like, the man was, he was, and he existed and he represented something. And the kind of the weird reductive nature in which he's understood, you know, um, it offends me, actually. Um, and then Glad was, it was half term. Yeah. And I was, uh, I was in Brighton with my 10 year old daughter. Actually, I mean, to be honest, she's nine. She's 10 tomorrow. Oh. I, was in, I was in Brighton with my nine-year-old daughter and we won through painstaking effort over several days on the pier. We won a huge paddly banana in a Hawaiian shirt, which we then carried around town for the rest of the day. And then, I mean, it wouldn't fit in anything. So then we... We came back from Brighton to Hackney, and uh, if you look on my Instagram, you'll see us with the banana and in the train and on the bus and just walking around. Um, that made me very glad, and she is still delighted. That's so made me glad. That's amazing. I guess finally, which I'm, I'm, I've, I've so enjoyed speaking to. You. I knew I would, but I'm so blessed that we've had this conversation. When's dispatches from the diaspora? available for us to buy, listen to, download, all that type of stuff? Dispatches from the Diaspora comes out. The official launch date is March the 16th. Mm. I think it might be in the shops slightly earlier than that. But uh, the official launch date is March the 16th. It's a collection of my journalism over 26, 28 years. It starts with the piece that got me my job, which was covering the first election in South Africa where Nelson Mandela stood. And it ends with Black Lives Matter. It's got interviews with Lewis Hamilton, Maya Angelou, Bishop Tutu, coverage of Katrina. You know, these kind of front row seats that I've had around the Black diaspora 
in moments of joy and crisis. I love that summation. It's perfect. Gary, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.